Thank you. I want to express gratitude to those of you who prayed for me this last week as I ministered in the Bible conference in Grand Rapids, Michigan. The conference was on the campus of the college where I attended. I graduated from there over 20 years ago, and so it was most interesting to see a number of friends um, that I hadn't seen in many, many years. One of the current students came up to me one evening after the service and said, Are you from Valley Falls, Kansas? And I took a step back, not knowing how to respond, because that's where I was born and raised. I said, Why, yes. She said, Do you remember Nora? (laughs) Uh, I said, I sure do. That was my first love. Back in the first grade, (laughs) there were three of us in our country school. Uh, Three of us in the first grade in our country school. Two boys and a girl, Nora. (laughs) The The odds weren't very good for the two of us. For her, it was great. And she said, well, I'm Nora's daughter. And she introduced me to her brother, who's also a student there. It was interesting to meet them and get acquainted. Someone on the faculty came up and said, my, you have matured well. I thought, what a diplomatic way of saying, you're looking old. (laughs) But uh, that's part of life, isn't it? That's part of life. Would you open your Bible with me, please, to 1 Thessalonians 5 as we conclude our study in this epistle from the pen of the Apostle Paul. We have a need to be meaningfully related to other people. Barbara Streisand did a song a number of years ago now that she, uh, in which she said, People who need people are the luckiest people in the world. Well, actually, luck has nothing to do with it. The fact is that all of us are created with a normal and healthy need to belong to some kind of a family system, to be a part of a community of acceptance, nurture, and discipline. And when you think about it, that's not a bad working definition of what a church ought to be. A community of people where there is acceptance, nurture, and discipline. And just as in a natural family there needs to be responsibility and duty, so in God's family, God's community, there is the same. There is duty. There is responsibility. And that's what the Apostle has been writing to these Thessalonians about as he concludes this book. Beginning in chapter 5, verse 12, he explains to all of us our duty. First, our duty to leaders in verses 12 and 13. Our duty to other people, verses 14 and 15. Our duty to God the Father, verses 16 through 18. And we've been looking now, this being the third week, at our duty to the church of Jesus Christ in verses 19 through 28. Our duty, he says, is threefold. Our duty is in the first place to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and his working in our midst. 
And then he says our need, our duty to the church is to be serious about our calling. God has called us to holiness in lifestyle. We need to be serious about that. God has called us to belong especially to him and to be used by him in the world. We need to be serious about that. And as we conclude the book, we see that our duty to the church is finally to be sincere with one another. Genuineness and loyalty to the people of God and to the work of God in the local church is an imperative. Genuineness and loyalty. Those two things are essential for a family, aren't they? A family really won't function as a family unless there is genuineness and and loyalty there. And the same is true of a church. It cannot function as God intends it to as a church unless there is sincerity with one another, unless there is genuineness, unless there is loyalty. Being sincere and devoted will characterize us as a church only to the extent that you and me determine in our hearts to be sincere and devoted. It seems to me that in these verses, which really are a a collection of closing comments, Paul lays out for us at least three areas where our sincerity toward one another really shows up. Let's read what he says. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The first area where he points out the need for our sincerity is in the area of intercession for one another. When he writes his second letter to the Thessalonians, the third chapter and verse 1 of that letter, he says, Finally, brethren, pray for us. Intercession is an area where you and I need to be sincere in our relating to other people in Christ's body. The Apostle says, brothers, it's emphatic the way that he writes this. He's emphasizing the fact that they have come from the same womb, which is what the word brothers means in the Greek language. They've come from the same womb of God. They have been born into the same family. And he says, based upon our familyhood, pray for us. Paul had already prayed for them. He made this clear as he began his book. Turn back to chapter 1 and look again at verse 2 where he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. So Paul has indicated that he's prayed for them. And in chapter 3, he tells us something about the way he prayed. Uh, He says, Now may our God and Father, verse 11, May God our Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all men, just as we also do for you so that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. As I look at that, I see here at least a couple of prayer requests that the Apostle Paul obviously had already offered to God. 
He prayed that the Thessalonians would be deeply in love with each other. That their love would abound and increase. And not only toward each other, but toward all men. Even toward those outside of the family of God. What was it that Jesus said would characterize us as his disciples? That's what he prays for. And he also prays for their holiness and lifestyle. He says that when Jesus comes, your hearts may be found blameless before him. In this book, he talks about the eminence of Christ's return, that, that Jesus could return at any moment. And the fact is, he could have returned back there in the, in the fifth decade A.D. when he wrote this letter. But he didn't return then. He didn't return in the first century or the fifth or the tenth or the fifteenth. He may return before the twentieth century is over. And as we look into the Mideast, we see a lot of indication that things are developing, pointing toward the end times and the return of Christ. Paul has been praying. He says, I pray that your hearts may be found blameless before God. That your lifestyle will be such that God will be pleased when Jesus comes. He calls them saints. As you and I pray for each other, those are two things we can always pray for and never be out of the will of God. Now the apostle invites them to share his battles and his burdens. He says, pray for us. Every now and then someone in the congregation here will come up to me and say, Pastor Galen, I want you to know that I pray for you every day. I can't tell you what that means to me, to have someone say that, and to know that that's the truth, that they pray for me every day. <clears throat> the fact is that the greatest and best gift that any of us can give to anyone else is to pray for them on a regular basis. That's the best gift we can give. Nothing more meaningful can be done for anyone than to pray for them. That's why I appreciated what was emphasized this morning, that we might be a, a praying church. Oh, it's good for us to write down our requests and to share them. Ask others to pray for us, as we do on the back of our registration slips. But you know something? It's even better for us to come and pray for those requests at 5 o'clock on Sunday afternoons. Or at other times when we gather for prayer. If we're going to be sincere, and we want to be sincere, then it means that this area of what we're about as a church needs our attention, intercession for one another. And if we're going to be sincere with one another, it also means that we must look after this area of affection for one another. The Apostle exhorts us here in this 26th verse to greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Affection for one another. Several other times in his epistles, Paul says something about this. Romans 16, 16, 1 Corinthians 16, 20, 2 Corinthians 13, 12. And Peter joins him in 1 Peter 5, 14, greeting one another with a kiss of holiness or a kiss of love. Christian affection. The point is that if we are sincere with one another, we need to be genuine in expressing our affection.
for our brothers and sisters in Christ. The holy kiss that he talks about here was the culture of that day. It uh, is a little foreign to us to go that far. Uh, We Westerners are somewhat more reserved than that, but if you uh, watch television at all, you see people in other parts of the world who greet each other with a kiss on the cheek, once, twice, three times. And that was the custom in Paul's day to these people that he wrote to. We need to be effusive in expressing our affection for our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. In a holy way, not a passionate way, obviously, but a holy way. Apparently, the custom in that day was that men greeted men this way, women greeted women this way. I think it's important for us to be open in our demonstration of Christian affection. Uh, That may be through a hug. Some people are comfortable with hugs. I don't mind hugs at all. Some people are very uncomfortable with that. They prefer a handshake. Some like the high five. However you wish to do it, however it's comfortable for you, the point is, don't be a loner. Don't just come and be isolated and walk out, leaving others untouched and being untouched. But be free to give that warm handshake or that embrace, that brazo, as they call it in South America, that indicates that we are more than just acquaintances. We're family. And because we're family, we want to be affectionate. Of course, it's more than a hug. It's more than a handshake. It's measured really by what I do for the benefit of somebody else. Sometimes hugs and handshakes can be only uh, superficial. The real measurement of our affection is how far we're willing to go to help another, to sacrifice for another. But the point is this, that if we're going to be sincere toward one another, it needs to involve our affection for each other. I think it's important for us to be open in our greeting of each other, and I want to press it beyond that, to say we need to be open in our accepting of newcomers into the family of God. That we must not allow our church to become a closed system of relationships. But that is a natural tendency in human dynamics. That we get our friends around us, and when that complement is filled whether it be a half a dozen or a dozen or 20, that we tend then to seal off that circle of relationships. Oh, no, no, no. We, we must try to avoid that. And as a church, whether it be our large body or in our smaller groups, to remain open to newcomers coming in so that we can assimilate, we can enfold them, into the family of God. As I think about us as a church, that's one thing I want to characterize us. I want us to be a praying church, but I want us to be an affectionate church too, a loving church that's willing to demonstrate its love openly and without embarrassment. And then if we're going to be sincere with one another, he tells us it needs to involve exhortation to one another. He says, I adjure you. It's a different word, isn't it? 
To adjure means I charge you. It has the force of an oath behind it. The meaning of it is that God would discipline them if they failed to do what he was about to ask them to do. So with that in mind, let's see what he asks. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. He says, pass this word around. Exhort each other with what I've said in this letter. You and I are to admonish one another with what comes to us from the word of God. This letter, of course, was a part of the word of God. It was inspired as it fell from the lips of the Apostle Paul and as it was written down. The Spirit of God caused these words to be written, and he says, Now read it among all the brethren. Pass the word. Our goal, of course, as a church is not to conform others to our image, but it is rather to see all of us conform to Christ's image. And brothers and sisters, this is where we find out what that image is all about. And so it's important for us to be a church that remains focused on the Word of God. The teaching of the Word of God. The exhortation to life that comes from the Word of God. As I think about the future of our church, I want us to be a praying church more than we are now. I want us to be an affectionate church even more than we are at this point. I want us to be a Bible-focused church. A group of people who love the Word of God and who are getting the Word out. You and I have a solemn obligation, a charge before God to keep the Word of God in our focus and to measure our lives and our ministries by it. Our duty to the church is to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. It is to be serious about God's calling in our lives. It's not frivolous. It's not a game. It's to be sincere with one another. That's our duty. God calls us to that. Our duty to the church to be sincere requires God's grace in our lives. That's why he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Not God's grace as some doctrine that we learn about intellectually. Not God's grace in a song that we may enjoy singing together as we do, Wonderful Grace of Jesus. But God's grace in the sense of an active, dynamic, potent force in our lives, enabling us to be sincere with one another. God's grace enabling us to be faithful in praying. God's grace enabling us to be open in our affection. God's grace enabling us to be honest in our exhortation to one another. The Christian life is a mingling of duty and delight. The two are not contrary. Just as Jesus obeyed and and did his duty by offering himself on the cross for our sins, that we might have eternal life. Just as he did his duty, he found delight in doing it. He said, I delight to do thy will, O God. 
The scripture says, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. You see, duty and delight are not opposites. They work together. When you and I are faithful to our duty, God fills our hearts with delight. It is a delightful thing to be dutiful to God. Let's pray together. Our heads bowed, our eyes closed. I'd like for you, just where you're seated, to respond to God's call to duty. Would you ask the Lord to enable you to be sincere in your relationships to others, in prayer, in affection, in exhortation? Would you ask God to strengthen you by his grace, to be a faithful member of the church, the body of Jesus Christ in this world. Lord, do this, we pray, and as a result of it, may the next ten years of our ministry, should Jesus tarry, be even more fruitful and more glorifying to you than we've experienced in our first ten years. In Jesus' name, amen.